Before we observe uh, communion uh, this morning, let me turn you with a, to a passage of Scripture. I think I'm going to do a, at least two or three messages on the subject of the Exodus and how God delivers us. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, and uh, I'll, I'll wait just a moment while you find it in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You may remember Joseph uh, in the book of Genesis is the one who uh, went down into Egypt and actually is the one who caused all of uh, his family, Israel, which at that time was only a few dozen people. And they went down into Egypt to find food. And there Joseph became second in command of Pharaoh and very popular in Egypt. Um, Well, years have gone by, generations have gone by. And now a new king over Egypt who hadn't heard of Joseph, couldn't care less about Joseph. And it says in uh, Exodus 1.9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come and let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. And therefore, verse 11 says, They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They even uh, tried to kill the boy babies. Thought if we can get rid of all the males, then they won't be a threat. They had grown so big, there were so many of them, that now the Egyptians felt like there's as many of them as there are of us. And they, so they reduced them to slavery. They put heavy burdens on them. They made them carry great loads as slaves, and they only became stronger. Well, Moses came down to deliver them, and it says in Exodus chapter 5, look at chapter 5 of Exodus in verse 15. The foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why are you treating your servants like this. Notice uh, he says, this is the people of Israel. This is the leader, a leader in Israel. He says to Pharaoh, why are you treating your servants like this? In other words, he's, he's acknowledging we're your slaves. We're your servants. Why are you so mean to us? Now God called them to be his servants. Here they're saying we're your servants and you're treating us so harshly. And Pharaoh said, verse 16 of chapter 5, No straw will be given to your servants. They say, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. He said, you're idle. You're too idle. You're, You're trying to go and sacrifice the Lord. He said, go, no straw will be given. You must still deliver the same number of bricks, but now you have to gather your own straw as well. So in other words... They were complaining because the workload was so great and they had asked 
Moses had pressured Pharaoh, let us go and worship God. And Pharaoh reacted by saying, you must have too much time on your hands. So let's give you more work to do. Now make bricks, those big pyramids in Egypt, many of those were made by Israelites, I assume. All these building programs, from now on you have to go and and gather your own pieces of straw to make your own pieces of brick in order to come and build these pyramids. And so it says that they cried to the Lord back in um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Um, it says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried for help. When we look at this uh, passage, uh, one of the things that you've got to keep in mind about the Old Testament is that it is full of pictures and stories that illustrate the Christian life. He's, in, in fact, uh, it says in Exodus 15 and verse 13, after God had brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, he says, Moses says to God, you have led forth the people that you redeemed. This whole Exodus story is the way God redeems us. In the New Testament, we have a redemption as well through Christ. And this Exodus story is given to show how God does it. There's three stages in the life of Israel. Uh, one is when they're in Egypt. This is the bondage stage. The, uh, Egypt is called the house of bondage. Exodus 13.3, Moses said to the people, remember this day when you came out of Egypt, which is a house of bondage. The second stage is the wilderness stage. That's when they've come out of Egypt and now they are in the wilderness where, they're, where God has to provide their needs and their taskmasters don't. They're not getting anything from Egypt now. Everything's got to come from God. They're in the desert. It's a time of testing and maturing. And, of course, you know... Uh, that's the way it is with us too. After redemption, then there is the maturing, but you can prolong your wandering in the wilderness. If you take a, 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 a map, you could actually walk from Egypt to Canaan in about three or four weeks. You know how long they were in the wilderness? Forty years. You can prolong um, immaturity. Now, the third stage is Canaan. What is Canaan? That was God's goal for their life. He brought them out of Egypt, not so that they could wander around in the wilderness and die. He brought them out of Egypt and out of the bondage of Egypt so that they could go into Canaan, build the temple, 
and fulfill their purposes and run off the enemies of God. In Canaan is purpose and fulfillment and victory. That's Canaan land. Now, in in the wilderness, they are God's people in the wilderness. They're identified as God's people, but they're aimless. They're wandering. The only enemies they fight is is themselves. They're always fussing with each other. And they're going nowhere. They just go in circles. Now, the Apostle Paul seems to draw the same three uh, stages when in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he calls people who don't have God's Spirit, he says, that's the natural man. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness unto him. And then in, in the next few verses, chapter 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he says, now, then there's the carnal man. What's the carnal man? Let me read this from 1 Corinthians uh, 3 and verse 1. He says, I, brothers, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal, as infants in Christ. In Christ? Yes. But infants, now, now listen, 1 Corinthians 3, 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are still not ready. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 2. In other words, they, there's the natural man, then there's the carnal Christian, which has prolonged his immaturity, like in the wilderness. And then he says, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual. That is, people who are led by this Holy Spirit and the the flesh and the carnal side is is submissive to the spiritual side. So Paul has a natural, a carnal, and a spiritual grouping of people in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. This corresponds, it seems to me, to the the bondage in in Egypt... The wandering in the wilderness and the victory in the book of Joshua in the land of Canaan. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. He brought them into Canaan. So he brings us out of bondage in the world. He brings us through infancy in Christ. And he brings us into victory and purpose and fulfillment and calling as in the, as they did in Canaan. These three stages of the spiritual life are typified by being in Egypt, being in the wilderness, and being in Canaan. Now, so here but here's what I want us to look at this morning. We'll pick this idea up next next week, but but what I want us to look at this morning is how does God take a person, his elect, if you will, who is in the world, how does he move him from being a slave of Satan and sin and the world and move him from that condition into freedom in Christ? And this is pictured for us in Exodus, and I want to give you four ways, four things to look for, how God delivers us or how he motivates us. And uh, these... 
these four things uh, I'll share with you before we take communion. So what's the first thing God does? Well, when you look at it in Exodus, what's the first thing that begins to happen when an Exodus is about to take place? Um, Pharaoh gets real mean. What, what that means is God turns up the heat on your comfortable life. Uh, I used to think sinners were not happy. I found that actually many sinners are quite happy. In fact, a lot of times sinners are happier than Christians. So how does God ever get anybody? By the way, you don't just come to Christ, you're brought. Amen? <laughs> because the, you're like Egypt in the world. Remember that Israel, or, uh, Israel is in Egypt. Remember that Israel was in Egypt 400 years. Very happy. But then a Pharaoh rose who knew not Joseph. Well, why did that happen? Because in order for God to get Israel out of Egypt, he has to make Israel unhappy in Egypt. So he has to make the sinner uncomfortable. So that's what he does. What, does, what do the Egyptians do? Uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And one of the things that happens is this. When you're in the world, God starts dealing with you by making the world's, the worldly lifestyle a burden. And you will find that you're trying to make bricks and straw and please the world and find your fulfillment in the world and it's just not happening any longer. It is a burden to you. It is an affliction for you to be in that lifestyle. He turns up the misery quotient. He introduces pain that comes and the world is the source of it. If God left us all alone, we'd never come out of the world. I thank God for every thorn that I ever touched when I got into the world and into the flesh and into the devil. And I've been there. I remember back 15 years ago. No, I'm just kidding. It's been more recent than that. <laughs> but he increases the misery. <clears throat> the second thing he does is he plagues the idols, the things you worship and look to. You know what the ten plagues are? They're the gods of Egypt. He turns the Nile, for example, into blood, the symbol of death. The Nile was the source. It, it doesn't rain in Egypt. The Nile is the source of life. And they worship the Nile. It was sacred. So what does God do? He kills it. All the ten plagues are put in a way that embarrasses the gods of Egypt. Even the last one, the tenth plague, is an affliction or a plague upon one of the gods of Egypt, the firstborn son of Pharaoh. So that at the end of the ten plagues, here's what uh, God says in Exodus 12, verse 12. 
I'll pass through Egypt on, on that night and strike down every firstborn and thus bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Having gone through the other nine, he hits the tenth one and he says, when I hit that one, I will have brought judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Now here's the question. What is your idol? If your idol is pleasing you and satisfying you and just everything to you and you're as happy as you can be with your idol, then God's not plaguing that idol. When, when God begins to punish the idol and embarrass the God you serve and so that it looks flawed and empty and unsatisfying and creates discontent more than fulfillment, then God's working in your life. Uh, and you can have Habakkuk 1.11 says... Uh, there are people whose might or their strength is their God. Some people just have incredible abilities and skills. And then they find that somehow I can't make a living with these skills. Plague. In Romans chapter 1, an idol, for example, he says, is uh, when they turn from the Creator and look at the creature who's made in the image of man. The, looking at a man... Uh, so some of y'all have boyfriends or, or girlfriends and you're looking at them as the ultimate source of your happiness. And then all of a sudden they become the ultimate source of your misery. How many people have you ever known that got married and then wondered, what did I just do? I, I constantly remind my wife, don't worship me. <laughs> You need to just turn to your turn to your wives, husbands right now and say, Honey, don't worship me. I'm not God. And and I'm sure they will uh, agree with you on that. If you've been married more than twenty four hours. We are flawed. You love your husband, but you worship your God. And every single idol that you will look to when God is working, he will Cause that idol to create discontent rather than content so that you will look to God as the ultimate source of your fulfillment and worship Him alone. So He brings these plagues upon these gods. By the way, I saw this verse, which I think is an amazing verse, Joshua 24, verse 14 uh, where Joshua says, Fear the Lord and serve Him, and throw away the gods your fathers worshipped in Egypt. Now he says that back over in Joshua, which means these plagues that came on these gods, these ten plagues that came on these gods, those were gods that even Israel was worshipping. And Joshua says, It's time to throw away the gods that our fathers worshipped in Egypt. So they were into idol worship. The third thing that he does to deliver us in the process is he teaches us to trust in the blood. Look over at Exodus chapter 12. Now let's say that you're, you've become discontented with, with your relationship with the world. And the misery quotient has risen significantly in your life. You're starting to look around. The, the gods which have made you happy in the recent years no longer are doing it. Now what? 
The next thing that happens is he teaches you to trust in the blood. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. Because this is where God tells the congregations of Israel to take a lamb, kill this lamb, put the blood, Exodus 12 verse 7, on the two doorposts, the, the side doorposts, and the lintel of the houses, and if you do that, by the way, that makes the sign of a cross. And he said, take the blood of this lamb and put it up there, and Exodus 12, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, and the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. That's the gospel. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will destroy you. Please note here that what they did is they put the blood on the door. They took their families inside the house on which the blood, and the blood was on the outside. They didn't see the blood. The blood was not for them to look at. The blood was for God to see. When God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Please note that he did not say, when I see your good deeds, years of Christian service. Amen? He did not see when he did not uh, say that when I see your tears of remorse. I was thinking the other day, I don't know enough to sorrow properly over my past sins. I don't I can't feel it because I don't know enough. I don't know all that my sins have done and how they have the effects have gone out in concentric circles of destruction to people's lives what i have missed the opportunities gone the years wasted i i don't know so therefore not knowing i can't grieve deep enough to be forgiven but he didn't say when i see the true degree of grief I will pass over you. No, when I see the blood on the lamb on the door, I will pass over you. You may be in varying degrees of sorrow over your sin today. And God will still pass over you when he sees the blood. He didn't say that he will pass over us because of the amount of money that is given. Amen. You ought to tithe, but the, the, the tithe is not going to make God pass over you. He does not say, when I see how old your sins are. I looked down, oh, I said, oh, that was 20 years ago. Man, we won't worry about that one. 
Some people think that's the way God passes up. Well, that's when I was young. He didn't say, when I see how fresh. You just did that yesterday. Think I'm going to pass over that? No, when I see the blood. He's not going to look at you at all. Some of y'all celebrated a little too long yesterday. (laughs) Speaking of Michigan, Michigan State, I heard that the coach of Michigan was so distraught, they're going to cut his salary in half, and um, he was sitting along the road. He had announced he's going to douse himself with gasoline, set himself on fire, because... So they were taking up donations for him. And uh, somebody said, how much, how much donations has he received? And they said, well, about 75 gallons of gas at the last counting. So <laughs> oh, whatever. But aren't you glad that when he sees the blood... He passes over you. Not anything regarding you. And by the way, don't forget Luke twenty two eleven, when Jesus had the first communion service with his disciples, and he said, This is my body and this is my blood. In Luke twenty two eleven in the New Testament, he calls it. A Passover. He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus Christ is our Passover. When God the Father sees the blood of Christ, He passes over us. He is the Lamb, and this is the household of faith that you take refuge in, that the plague of judgment not come on you. A fourth thing I want to give to you real quick, and that is... That, that God, in, in the book of Exodus here, teaches us on how he delivers us, is he tells us to be ready to follow wherever he leads us. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11. They've just put their faith in the blood. And Exodus twelve eleven then says this, This is how you are to eat it. That is the lamb that was slain. With your cloak tucked in, into your belt, shirt tail in, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You know what that means? That means be ready to follow me. Once you have put your trust in the blood, understand this. You need to be ready to travel because we're going somewhere. God does not want a Christian to simply put his faith in the blood, sit at the table, and wait to die. No, he says, I want you to eat the blood of the lamb, and I want you to put your faith in the blood of the lamb with a staff in your hand, your shoes on your feet, your shirt tucked in, because we're about to march out of here. You're about to start on a journey you wouldn't believe. And what an adventure of faith. God says, I want you to be ready to follow me. Faith in the blood is the beginning of an adventure with God. 
a journey of faith. And by the way, you know the first place he took them? Um, When you get out of Exodus 12 where they put the blood on the door, then he said, staff in hand. Now, the next day he comes, he says, follow me. And they march out and cross the Red Sea. Waters part, they cross over, and God, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.1, baptized the whole nation of Israel in the Red Sea. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10.1. He counted that as a baptism. The biggest baptism in history. So what's the, what's the first thing God says? I want you to be ready to follow me. So where's the first place we go? Through the waters of baptism. <laughs> I am Baptist. <laughs> and God baptized the whole nation of Israel immediately after they put their faith in the blood. If you've put your trust in the blood, you ought to follow us in believer's baptism. March through your own little Red Sea. It's a reenactment of the whole Exodus story, and then there's a whole journey to follow on the other side of that. I don't think there is any feeling or excitement or exhilaration like the freedom with which God has set his people free. Luke uh, chapter 15 verse 7 says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a whole church full of righteous people who don't need it. One deliverance. Joy in heaven. Some of y'all saw that um, um, yesterday in the news. Y'all heard about those 33 miners trapped underground in a... uh, in uh, is it Chile, um, pitch black, claustrophobic cave, over two thousand feet underground, and they've been there since what August fifth. And at first, they didn't know if they could get to them. <clears throat> they didn't know if they was alive. They were all alive, thirty-three of them, but <clears throat> they've been down there in the dark so long. Their skin's infected. They're they can't see when they, um, when they get to the light, assuming they do. They'll have to wear dark glasses. They have become accustomed to the pit. Um, well, yesterday they broke through. And there was an eruption of clapping from the journalists and the family members and the government workers and the skilled workers that were all there, they just applauded and applauded and cried and hugged because liberty is about to take place. Freedom. Who wants to be in bondage? Who wants to be in the black pit? Who wants to carry the heavy burden and slink around? God, through Jesus Christ, has come to set us free and we ought to grasp it, walk in it, Relish it. What glorious liberty of the sons of God. We're going through an exodus. 
We're about to take a journey. Next Sunday we'll look at the wilderness and uh, how to move out of immaturity and into Canaan and into victory. But this morning, before we go, I want us to just bow before God, reminding ourselves, Lord, thank you for not looking at my sins. Thank you for not looking how fresh they are or how old they are. Thank you for not looking at the money that is given. Thank you for not looking at the degree of sorrow that's in in my heart or not in my heart. Thank you for just looking at the blood and passing over me. And we're going to divide into two groups. Um, Tony, would you and Kathy come and remove the covering? And would you stand with us and let me pray for you?